This morning is Sunday, August 7th, Sunday morning. Our topic today is God is on the move. Okay? God is on the move. There's a reason that I picked this topic, though. And the reason is, in our web ministry, uh, on the board, several things were posted this week that I thought we could, could cover to give a, a good perspective on the way we're supposed to look at things. We, there's a way that seems right to us. There's a natural way that we look at things. And Jude says that's exactly what divides churches, when men lean on their natural instincts instead of the Spirit. Not every instinct that you have is wrong, but we find out a lot of them are very tainted, you know? Um, so I wanted to look at the right way to do this. You know, when we sing, we sing about the Holy Spirit raining down on us. We sing about God's presence falling on us. And in in theory, this is okay. I mean, actually, in practice, it's okay. You see that God shows up when we sing about Him this way. But the Bible doesn't really teach that God is far off and needs to come near to you. It doesn't teach that at all, not once you're in Christ, not once you're in His covenant. And it's important that we get the right perspective on this because it will encourage you. It will change the way that you think about your access to God. And I noticed that the way our Christian vernacular is does not really represent the truth of the way things work in the Spirit. So with that said, we're going to dive into God is on the move. All right? Y'all interested in this at all? Okay. Well, good. Turn with me to Psalms 139. By the way, did you know that most Hebrew people in the Old Testament period, and I'm not saying they didn't into the New Testament period, but in the Old Testament period for sure, had all of the Psalms memorized? 150 psalms they had completely memorized. And that sounds like an incredible feat, doesn't it? Sounds like it might even be beyond your grasp, huh? Here's the thing, though. In Hebrew, these words flow together like poetry. They use all kinds of literary devices, some of which seem so boring in the 7th grade and ninth grade when you learned them, and now I'm all interested in it and wish I could go back and relearn that stuff. But through the use of uh, rhyme and meter and through the use of things like onomatopoeia, the way that these word endings flow together, these were easy to memorize. So that we sing a song called Hallel, right? And you all know the song that we sing in here, Hallel? Well, they sang that and that was Psalm 113 through Psalm 118. In your Bible, that covers a lot of distance. Now, we've just taken 115 to 118 and a few words out of it and we call it the Hallel. They had them memorized because they flowed like songs. Do you think there's a teenager that you know somewhere that if you began a song, they could finish it and could probably do that with 150 songs? Lord, I know some people that could probably do that with the Beatles songs. You you know what I mean? Well, God set this book up in a way that He wanted it in you. He wanted you to understand it. In fact, the word for knowledge, I'll tell you all about that later, but the way Hebrews looked at education was a lot different. If I don't remember... Somebody at some point, raise your hand and say, you're going to tell us about knowledge, okay? It's kind of a funny story. You all in Psalm 139? Yeah, yes, no, yeah. Y'all, okay, yes. In Psalm 139, starting in verse 7, Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely darkness will hide me and light will become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day. For darkness is as light to you, for you created my inmost being. And then we go into a very familiar scripture. But what David is crying out here is, where could I go in all of this creation that you're not? That's a totally different perspective than thinking of, God, would you please come visit me here, isn't it? He's saying, there's nowhere I could go that you are not. Instead of saying, Lord, would you please come to the one place on the planet where I am? Isn't that an interesting distinction to make? Jeremiah 23 says this. You can turn there or not turn there. It doesn't matter. I'm going to read it to you. It's Jeremiah 23, verse 23. Am I only a God nearby? declares the Lord, and not a God far away? Can anyone hide in secret places so that I cannot see, declares the Lord? Do I not fill the heaven 
and the earth, declares the Lord. Do I not fill the heaven and the earth, declares the Lord. What does that tell you? These are the classic Scriptures that teach you about God's omnipresence, teach you that God is everywhere. And yet at times we see God seem to be very local. (laughs) So how do you reconcile the two? And is it okay for us to pray the way that... Have you not heard, well, the two of us are praying, and where two of us are gathered, He's in the midst. Have you not heard that? Y'all don't use that? Don't say that? Friends, that's talking about church discipline. It's saying when two people filled with God's Spirit agree on something, it's as if Jesus was there issuing the judgment. But that's not how we use it. Oops, I'm alone, so I'm without God. But if I just get Diana on my side, now God's here. I've done that for years, and it's not necessarily that that's just a horrible thought. I mean, the more people that are filled with the presence of God that you're around, the more likely you are to be able to discern His will. I'm not saying that that's not true. But there's a difference in the way that we think about this, and it makes a difference in your walk. If you see God as far off, needing to call you to call to Him for help to come to you, as opposed to the way that we're going to present that the Bible shows it, your accessibility to God is different. Your attitude about God is different. Your walk with God might be totally different depending on how you view His perspective. Now, let me put this in a natural realm for you just for a minute, and then I promise we're going to dive deep headlong into the spiritual realm. Children, if they know their parents are in the house, do they act better or worse than if they know their parents are in New York while they're in Fort Lauderdale? Better. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? I once knew a salesman, <laughs> mythical guy, who said that he preferred to never have the corporation that he worked for in the same state as the territory that he serviced. I know exactly why that is. Okay? If you view God as far off, you're going to act differently than as if you view Him as in you and you His temple. Now, Christians, we know this. We understand that He's in us. We understand He's the temple. But in our practical teaching, we are always asking for Him to come join us. David's attitude, the Hebrew perspective was, there's nowhere I could go to get away from you. That's why Jews are so confused when you look at Him and say, hey, do you know Jesus is your personal Savior? Like you've got a little pocket God or something. He's like, what are you talking about? God is he's the Savior of the world, man. He's the Savior of everything. And they don't relate to Him as I, my Savior. It's our Savior because they recognize Him as everywhere. Well, drop the microphone. They recognize Him as everywhere. The distinction's an important one. So let me tell you how they do view Him, okay? Well, am I, yeah, you're going to go check it. <laughs> Lapel mics are wonderful unless they fly out of your pocket into the first row, huh? In Acts 17, here's a very familiar scripture for you, okay, that just emphasizes the right way to view God. You remember, this is Paul, and Paul is speaking to the Areopagus on Mars Hill. He's talking to the Greeks of his day. And here's the Jewish perspective on life. In, in Acts 17, verse 27, he says, God did this so that men would seek Him and perhaps reach out for Him and find Him though He is not far from each one of us. For in Him we live and move and have our being, as some of your own poets have said, we are His offspring. So well, what, what on earth is that important for? What He's saying is God is working in the events around you. He's moving around you. He is here all of the time. He's never been far from you. He's trying to show you that He is nearby so that you'll reach out and find Him. This is vastly different than Far Eastern religions. It's vastly different than many New Age thoughts that somehow you have to ascend to a place where you can meet God. We serve the kind of God that comes and meets you right where you are. I've used this many times before, but I just like it, so you're going to be tortured with it again. I was reading a book by Spiros Zodhades, and this guy said that he wrote down the account of a native of interior China who was praying because he heard the missionary talk and he was trying to understand the difference between Taoism and Buddhism and Christianity. And the big ones that he was upset about is he couldn't figure out so many roads that seemed right to him. How do I know? And he had a dream. And it was a dream that he had fallen into a deep pit that he couldn't get out of. He had tried and couldn't get out. And up walks Buddha and says, Friend, if you can reach up to my hand, I will help you out. If you can elevate yourself, 
Then you'll find some kind of enlightenment, the idea. And Confucius walked by and said, Ah, friend, you've obviously fallen in a hole. Try to avoid this next time. You know? These summed up those religions to him. And then came the man Jesus who crawled down into the hole, became something that he could climb on to get out of the hole. That's something totally different. He picked him up and he carried him out of the hole. We serve a God who will meet you where you are. A God who's not scared to touch an unclean leper, a whore, or a drunkard. Because he knows that his contact with them will make them clean. Isn't that awesome? That's awesome. Okay. Man has an insecurity, though. We have this thought. And if you don't see it, sometimes it's hard for you to believe it, right? You know? My little boy, my youngest son, does not want to get in a pool without floaties. Just doesn't want to do it. It's a trust thing that I'm trying to build with him so that he will get in the pool without floaties. But you know what? He's never seen himself swim. (laughs) He knows other people can swim. He believes it works for them. But he's not sure he can do it. That's a problem for him. And only Daddy's constant encouragement will build the kind of trust that will get him to learn to swim. That's how most people view Christianity. I know healing. I know the baptism in the Spirit. All that stuff works for somebody else. I'm sure it works in Patricia's life. might work in Mandy's life. But will it work for me? And most people are content to stay right there with floaties, you know, in the shallow end on the side. Maybe it's that pastor's job. That's not really how God is, though. God calls every one of us to the deep end. You know, you either dive off in Him. He's kind of an all-or-nothing God. He's very patient, but that's the direction He's headed with you. It's all or nothing. So man's insecurity. In Exodus 33, we doing all right, Master Piro? In Exodus 33, Genesis, Exodus, you'll see a scripture. We start around 12? Somewhere right around 12? 11, I'm sorry. Yeah. Okay, somewhere right around 11. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I got an extra hour. Uh, Woodrow Wilson was obviously a president of, of this country, and I was listening to a man speak named Yossi uh, Olmert. Yossi Olmert was the uh, mayor of Jerusalem's brother. All right? You know, all politicians have a brother that <laughs> gets famous because of the politician. It was so funny, his recounting a story of being asked to speak somewhere. And... Uh, The story that he was recounting to me was about Woodrow Wilson. He said, Woodrow Wilson was at this banquet, right? (laughs) And they said, "Uh, Mr. Wilson, or President Wilson, would would you speak? I mean, you would do us such an honor. I mean, could you just speak with us for five minutes? And the great politician said, five minutes? I I don't have enough time to... I haven't prepared. And the guy says, for five minutes? He says... Yeah, that that take me three or four hours to prepare for a five-minute speech. That's three or four hours for a five-minute speech. What if we asked you to speak for an hour? He said, thank you. I'm prepared to do that right now. <laughs> yeah, you got to love those guys. Huh? I have no idea why I told you all that, but it was fun. All right, you all in Exodus 33? Are you all in Exodus 33? Yes, oh, there we go. Kim, Kim, that's right. Yes, in Hebrew. And I'll respond, Toda. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Uh, Exodus 33, starting in verse 15. It says, Then Moses said to him, If your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other peoples on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing that you have asked because I'm pleased with you and I know you by name. So what do you mean God will go with them? I thought David just said God was everywhere. How does God go anywhere? I mean, if God's everywhere, how does He go anywhere? Isn't that an interesting thought? Wrap your mind around that one for a while. It's got to be about 3 o'clock in the morning to wrap your mind around that one, huh? (laughs) Moses was concerned with the same thing we're all concerned with. You want to know. You want to feel or see or somehow touch God's presence around you to know that He's with you. Just like my son in a swimming pool, if he's trying to learn to swim, he's got one hand on me all of the time, which makes it pretty darn hard to swim, doesn't it? He can't use all of his limbs because one's wrapped around Dad the whole time. 
You ever take a young child that's scared of heights trying to pick them up above your head? It's like trying to shove a cat in a box, you know? You, they, they're grasped onto you somewhere, everywhere. Well, Moses wanted to know God was going with him. The reality is, God's Lord over the whole creation. He was with him no matter where he went. But God provides what Moses needs because he gives us what we need. God gives us what we need, not what we deserve. I want you to begin to think about this, okay? God was everywhere, but God provided this to him anyway. There are times we cry out, Lord, I just need to feel you. And he provides that for us because he knows we need it. But he's not obliged to do this. We don't walk by feelings. He asked something of us, and we're to be obedient to it. He never promises you that you'll see the results, feel the results, taste the results. Never. It's a great blessing to me that a family in Chicago or a family in Lafayette or a family in Baton Rouge or a family in Arkansas tells us, wow, your ministry is feeding us. Thank you for what you're doing. That blesses my socks off. But even if I never heard that feedback, even if I never got the report that we were bearing fruit, it doesn't change the fact that God told me to do it. See, if we become the charismatic church, and we're not really, but you understand what I mean, this stereotypical charismatic church that has to feel a certain way to be obedient, something's wrong. That's, that's what's wrong with this thing I call the charismatic zoo. A wind of doctrine blows in and they'll bark like dogs. Another wind of doctrine blows in and they'll look for gold dust on the floor. It's ridiculous. Always needing to feel some new fad. God's not like that. He's with you all of the time. If you happen to feel Him more one day than another day, then praise God, what a blessing. In fact, we're going to find out that it's God who doesn't move. And us, well, actually, it's God who doesn't change. He's always on the move. And it's us that change. Okay, so man's got an insecurity. Here's how the Hebrews thought about God, though. Moses asked for help, and God sends an angel with him so he can see it. Sends a cloud by day and pillar of fire by night so they see what they're doing. This was training. It was training for them and it's training for us. It teaches us how to relate to the movement of God's Spirit. When He does something, you're obedient. You move to it. Does that make sense? Okay, but here's how the Hebrews envision God's throne. Y'all ever heard that He's enthroned upon our praises? Right? Ah, the God that's enthroned upon the praises of His people and we sing songs about it. I bet you've never visualized it quite like this. Turn with me to number 7. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. Thank you, sweetheart. Are you uh, in number 7? Yeah, yeah. Ten. <laughs> this church wants to go to Israel. I'm so happy about that. Get your passports. Numbers 7. Number seven's a pretty long chapter, isn't it? <laughs> turn, turn with me to verse 89. When Moses entered the tent of meeting to speak with the Lord, he heard the voice speaking to him from between the two cherubim above the atonement cover on the ark of the testimony, and he spoke with him. Where did Moses hear God's voice coming from? from between the two cherubim on the atonement cover of the ark. This led the Hebrew people to begin to view God as enthroned above these cherubim. Now, what was the ark of God? This was just a... Actually, that's a beautiful message too about how the ark was built. But in any case, foregoing that for a moment, this was a golden box that had in it the law of God. Uh, actually, the broken law of God. It had in it a jar of manna at one point in history, the life of God, the sustaining word of God. Later on, it had in it Aaron's staff that budded, that showed where God's approval was and where his power of life was. Those things were contained in the ark. The book of Hebrews tells us all of that relates to Jesus. When Jesus stands up in John and says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, it all relates to Jesus. But here's what I want you to start to get in the Hebrew mindset, okay? And then we're going to explore this through Ezekiel and through Revelation. They very much viewed God as somehow being enthroned between these cherub, cherubim. It's always hard to know which is plural and which is uh, singular. But between these winged creatures, 
they viewed God's presence. Now, we've already established that God's presence was all over the earth, but they viewed Him because He promised to go with them as between these cherubim. Okay? In Chronicles 28, David refers to something. One more principle, and then we're going to get into Ezekiel. First Chronicles 28. Chronicles 28... It's on page 510. Skim all the way down to verse 18. We're going to pick up in the middle of a sentence, and I hate that. But David is describing articles in the temple. Okay? And he says, And the weight of the refined gold for the altar of incense. He also gave him the plan for the chariot, that is, the cherubim of gold, that spread their wings and shelter the ark of the covenant of the Lord. God was giving David a plan for a future temple that his son would build, and he gave him details down to the weight of gold for different things. And what did he call the ark with the uh, cherubim over it? He referred to it as something. A chariot. Isn't that interesting? In fact, they began to refer to these cherubim and this thing, that this presence that was above it, God's presence speaking, as God's chariot throne. That's why he says that is the chariot I'm talking about. There's a reason for this. God was everywhere, but a chariot was an item of war and an item of transportation. It was the tank of the day. And what they were saying is when we carry this thing with us, God is with us in power, buddy. He's with us. You may not see Him. You may not know He's there, but He's there. That's really, really important. Now we're going to look at actually what is in the heavens, how this actually works. The ark is a shadow. It's a symbol of something that is in the heavens. The book of Hebrews tells us these are but copies of something that is in heaven. And see how that relates to us. By the way, this chariot throne, Psalm 18, 2 Samuel 22, or if you want to write down those verses, Psalm 18, 10, 2 Samuel 22, the whole chapter, speaks of God mounting the cherubim and flying. Isn't that interesting? God who's everywhere mounts these winged creatures and flies. I wonder why the Hebrews thought about it like this. Psalm 99 says, The Lord reigns. Let the nations tremble. He sits enthroned between the cherubim. Let the earth shake. You'll find Scripture after Scripture about God being between these cherubim. And they thought of it as a mobile chariot. Well, Ezekiel was a man who had dramatic visions of God. Would you all say Ezekiel had a dramatic vision? Some of you hadn't read the book of Ezekiel, huh? Ezekiel is a powerful, powerful book. Ezekiel and Daniel saw things that were so far beyond their day, so miraculous that it's, it's, it boggles our mind when we read it. Okay? I want to read you a couple things out of Ezekiel. Turn to Ezekiel 1. And to get to Ezekiel, you make a right from where you are. In the Thompson chain, Ezekiel is in the 900s. And uh, Ezekiel 1 is on page 919. Ezekiel's having a vision here. And in Ezekiel 1, verse 15, y'all are there? Are you there? Kim, yeah, toda. As I looked at the living creatures, I saw a wheel on the ground beside each creature with its four faces. This was the appearance and the structure of the wheels. By the way, these living creatures, Ezekiel 10 tells us, are cherubim. Okay? They sparkled like chrysolite, the wheels. And all four looked alike. Each appeared to be made like a wheel intersecting a wheel. As they moved, they would go in any one of the four directions that the creatures faced. The wheels did not turn about as the creatures went. The rims were high and awesome. And all four rims were full of eyes all around. When the living creatures moved, the wheels beside them moved. And when the living creatures rose from the ground, the wheels also rose. Wherever the Spirit would go, they would go. And the wheels would ride along with them because the Spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. When the creatures moved, they also moved. When the creatures stood still, they also stood still. And when the creatures arose from the ground, the wheels arose along with them because the Spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. Don't get confused with this. I'll tell you what all this is as we go. Verse 22. Spread out above the heads of the living creatures was what looked like an expanse of sparkling ice and awesome. 
Under the expanse, their wings were stretched out one toward another, and each had two wings covering its body. When the creatures moved, I heard the sound of their wings, like the roar of rushing waters, like the voice of the Almighty, like the tumult of an army. When they stood still, they lowered their wings. What we're envisioning are these wheels that are on the ground. Somehow or another, they intersect. I don't quite understand that. I've tried to draw it a hundred times. I don't get it. Any direction, these wheels can move without turning. Okay? Just above these wheels were these winged creatures that were living creatures who had their wings stretched upward. Later on, you're going to find out they have hands. The tips of their wings touched something that looked like an expanse uh, of ice, glass, or a sea. In the New Testament, they say chrysolite. Something clear and beautiful, heavenly. Okay, that's what we have so far. Then there came a voice from above the expanse over their heads as they stood with lowered wings. Above the expanse over their head was what looked like a throne of sapphire. And high above on the throne was a figure like that of a man. Figure like that of a man. What's like in English? It's a simile, right? This is a simile. He's not saying he's a man. He says he's like that of a man. I saw that from... I saw that from what appeared to be his waist up, he looked like glowing metal as full of fire. And that from there down, he looked like fire. And a brilliant light surrounded him, like the appearance of a rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day. So was the radiance around him. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. What was this? This thing that looked like a man? The appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. When I saw it, I fell face down and I heard the voice of the one speaking. Ezekiel is seeing a vision and he's looking into the heavenlies and one of the things that he sees is he sees this thing with wheels that moves in any direction at any time and is alive. And attached to these wheels are these four living creatures with wings stretched up towards a glass expanse. And just above it is enthroned someone that represents the radiance of God's glory. That's what he sees, okay? In Ezekiel 10, flip over a couple pages. Hope it doesn't bother you all that we read so much out of this. I figure you probably have never heard this read from behind a pulpit, right? People are scared to death of these kind of visions because they might not have an answer for everything. I'll tell you, there are a lot of chapters in the book of Ezekiel I, I still don't quite get. But what we do, I'll preach to you and we'll try to fill in the gaps as God gives them to us. Ezekiel 10, verse 1. I looked and I saw the likeness of the throne of sapphire above the expanse that was over the heads of the cherubim. The Lord said to the man clothed in linen, Go in among the wheels and beneath the cherubim. Fill your hands with burning coals from among the cherubim and scatter them over the city. And as I watched, he went in. Now the cherubim were standing on the south side of the temple when the man went in, and a cloud filled their inner court. Then the glory of the Lord rose above the cherubim and moved to the threshold of the temple. The cloud filled the temple and the court was full of the radiance of the glory of the Lord. The sound of the wings of the cherubim could be heard as far away as the outer court, like the voice of God Almighty when He speaks. I want to be very clear. What we see here are cherubim. What's right above them is a glass expanse. What's above that is something that represents the radiance of God's glory and it looks like a man. A man whose skin is like burning metal, like burnished bronze, and he's wrapped in a rainbow. Daniel sees something very similar to this, and he calls him the Ancient of Days. But the Scripture that I wanted to read to you is from the last book of the Bible, in the book of Revelation. Turn to Revelation 4. Tell me when you're there. And <laughs> not there, not there, I'm there. <laughs> All right. Revelation four, verse two. At once I was in the spirit. Who's writing? Who's writing here? John. At once I was in the spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. A rainbow resembled an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were twenty four other thrones, and seated on them were twenty four elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their head. From the throne came flashes of lightning, 
rumblings and peals of thunder. Before the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also before the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center, around the throne, were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and back. Would it be safe to say that it looks like all three of these accounts that I read to you are pretty well envisioning the same thing? Well, the book of Revelation identifies who's sitting on the throne. It identifies who's sitting on the throne and who all the elders are worshiping. He's the only one worthy to open the seals. He's the one that died and lived again. He's the Lamb of God. I said, well, Eric, why are we doing all of this? Well, I want to show a couple things. One is, anytime you want to know something in the New Testament, it needs to be interpreted out of the Old. That's just the way this works. We inherited a Jewish book. Here's a second. The Jews envisioned God's presence as between those cherubim. They envisioned the ark with the cherubim on top of it with having this structure over it all of the time. God had a mobile throne. He was with His chosen people all of the time wherever they went. He was there ready to do battle. He was there ready to sustain them, to throw their enemy into confusion, to do whatever needed to be done. And who was above it? said He was the radiance of God's glory. Hebrews 1.1 identifies one person as the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of His being. That's Jesus, the Christ. The guy who's seated above that throne that looks like a man is Yeshua HaMashiach, the Messiah. So, well, still, Eric, I don't get it. Why are we belaboring that? And what on earth does that have to do with calling God who's far off and all of these things that I started talking about? Well, in 2 Samuel 6, let's turn there. There is a shadow and type that the apostles definitely understood. 2 Samuel 6, starting in, on page 342 in your Thompson chain, if that's what you have. We see a shadow and type that I'll read quickly because I want to get into the New Testament with you and tie these things together. God had a chariot throne. The cherubim supported Him above their wings. There was a chrysolite expanse above the cherubim. And then what was on top of it was this rainbow-encircled, glowing, human-like radiance of the glory of God. Right? Y'all in 2 Samuel 6? Yes. <laughs> Toda. David again brought together out of Israel chosen men, 30,000 in all. He and all his men set out from Belah of Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim that are on His ark. They viewed this ark as while they're carrying it, the presence of God is on it. They set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Amenadab, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ohio, sons of Amenadab, were guiding the new cart with the ark of God on it. And Ohio was walking in front of it. David and the whole house of Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord, with songs and with harps, with lyres, tambourines, sistrums, and cymbals. When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore, God struck him down and he died there beside the ark of God. Doesn't that seem like such a sad story? You'll keep your finger there. We're going to keep reading. Doesn't that seem like, my God, he was just trying to help, right? I tell you, this was a mercy killing if there had ever been a mercy killing. This was the presence of God. Just above these golden cherubim were real cherubim. Just above this ark where there was the symbolic presence of God, or just above the ark, which in the ark was the symbolic presence of God, was the real presence of God. The presence of God was never meant to rest on animal shoulders. God had a prescribed way that it would be carried. There had to be four rings on the side of the ark and they had to be made of gold. They had to be pure and divine and without end, meaning that they would be for an eternity. Then through them would stretch two poles. It's because there would be four Gospels, right? And this four Gospels, these two poles that carried the ark, would be carried on men's shoulders. The Gospel of God that would go out, the presence of God that would go out for all mankind to see was supposed to go on men's shoulders for a reason. We're going to get to that reason. Uzzah didn't know it. Uzzah was just trying to help. 
He messed up something that was a shadow and type. They had to do it again for one reason. Uzzah died for you. Did you know that? Uzzah died so that you would be able to read this and get a message that God was trying to convey. Because if he hadn't died and if it had been done wrong, you might never get this message. And here is the message. Well, first we have to listen to David complain for a while. Verse 8. Then David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah. And to this day that place is called Perez Uzzah, which means it breaks out, wrath breaks out. David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, How can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? This is a problem with viewing the presence of God within you, which is where we're going. If God is within me and I do things that are unholy, that's shameful, right? So we would rather view God as distant, visiting us on occasion, than God within us because we do things that God doesn't like. You'd rather your parents be away while you're on spring break vacation than right there in the hotel with you or on the beach with you. David's seeing that God's a holy God and that something's happened, and he's scared. He wants the ark at a distance from him. But this is not God's plan, so he's got to get David's attention. He was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. Instead, he took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, for three months. And the Lord blessed him and his entire household. Wherever God's presence is, there is blessing. Wherever God's presence is, there is blessing. And when we try to stiff-arm God's presence, although He's everywhere, when you try to keep Him from knowing you, being close to you, and we're going to get back to know in a minute, then you can't experience that blessing. As long as you keep God at a distance in your life, only letting Him in part, only visiting Him on Sunday and Wednesday nights, picking Him up like you might date Him rather than being married to Him, you can never know the blessing of God. Now, King David was told, The Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of God. Created a little envy, didn't he? When the presence of God rests on one people, it might provoke another people to envy. Now, if that doesn't remind you of Romans 9 through 11, then you need to go back and read it again. Provoked him to envy. And verse 13. Uh, no, verse... 12, I guess. Now, the King David was told, the Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of God. So David went down and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. When those who were carrying the ark, this time we've got men carrying it, and that's because First Chronicles 15, 13 says it had to be Levites. The, Lord, uh, the ark of the Lord, they had taken six steps. He sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. David, wearing a linen ephod, danced before the Lord with all of his might. While he and the entire house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouts and sounds of trumpets. Get this. This thing that represents that God is actually enthroned above with a chariot throne, representing God being with Israel, has got joyful dancing before it. It's on the shoulders of men. There's harps and lyres and tambourines. And what are they going to do with it? That's the question. What is this presence of God there for? Why has God identified Himself as having a chariot on top of this ark? What does He want to teach that's important enough for Uzzah to die for getting it wrong? As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michael, daughter of Saul, watched from a window. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. There are times that the presence of God moves in our church services and it will cause you to leap and dance for joy. It will cause you to do things that seem somewhat undignified. And people with the wrong heart, oh, they may be religious enough, they may have come from the right kind of family, they look and they sneer. So why would you do that? David understood something about the presence of God here and he was excited because what he's doing foreshadows something. Michael doesn't understand. They brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David sacrificed burnt offerings and before we read the rest of that. They brought the ark of God, the chariot throne of God riding upon cherubim and put it inside of a container. The apostles realizing this event, they saw it as representing something and they referenced it. If this is David's tent, and the word for tent is tabernacle, what do you think we call this structure? 
David's tabernacle. Is that ringing a bell with anybody yet? Here's what it is. This ark of God, this presence of God, was carried with joyful rejoicing and great sacrifice up into a tent, in the presence of a tent for a reason. They rolled up the sides of this tent. All the nations saw the glory of God in this vessel. There was joyful worship going on all around it 24 hours a day. And King David went out and fought through the next several chapters and had great victories everywhere he went. The apostles were thinking about this. They were struggling with a question. They were Jews and they had lived like Jews always. And they had been promised the Holy Spirit. They had been promised a Spirit that would teach them how to obey the law. A Spirit that would cause them to know the Lord. A Spirit that would usher in the kingdom of God. And now all they see in their lives in the early book of Acts is they see Gentiles beginning to come into this church. They see Gentiles and something's happening to these Gentiles. But what was it that was happening? Was it just that they were acknowledging God? Gentiles had always done that. They became God-fearing Gentiles that way. Was it just that they became proselytes to Judaism? No, that wasn't it either. Something unique was happening to them. This God who's enthroned upon the cherubim, who has a sea of glass above the cherubim, and His holiness is the only thing on top of it. This God that had only been represented this way with Israel was entering into the tent of Gentile bodies. When they saw these men getting filled with the Holy Spirit, they were amazed. They couldn't believe that the God of Israel was filling these men in the same way that they had been filled. And you know what they said? They said, we realize what's written in Amos. We realize what is written in 2 Samuel. These are the days when David's fallen tabernacle is being rebuilt. They recognized that the chariot throne of God was setting up its residence in men's hearts. Not far from us. Not away. Not in one locale. Matthew mentioned in worship that the veil of the temple at the crucifixion was torn in two. Well, let me ask you something. We started in a place today where we read that the heavens can't contain God, let alone the earth. So what was it about the Holy of Holies? Man has an insecurity. Moses needed to see that God was with him. The Israelites needed to see that God was with them. So you know what God did at the crucifixion? He tore that thing in half to show that nothing could contain Him. He was not in one place. He was not. The problem with the Holy of Holies is it was in Jerusalem. I'm not in Jerusalem. And I need God. So God entered a new Holy of Holies. 2 Corinthians 5 calls your body this tent. The book of Corinthians declares it to be a jar of clay that God's power is in. God's warring chariot of His presence is not on a box marching around a desert. He's not so far in the heavens that you can't reach Him, so far in the depths that He's not there. He has set up His residence in your heart. David had some sense that this was a new thing in Israel, that this was an exciting moment. And he stripped all the way down to his underwear in excitement, dancing before God and his own wife ridiculed him. And you know what he told her? It's in 2 Samuel 7, verse 20. When David returned home to bless his household... Michael, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, How the king of Israel has distinguished himself today. Now, I know those of you that aren't married may not understand this, but occasionally in a marriage there's a little sarcasm. At least I've heard that. Not not that I've experienced it. She's been a little sarcastic here. Disrobing in the sight of slave girls, uh, of his servants, as any vulgar or common fellow would. David said to Michael, It was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his house when he appointed me as ruler over the Lord's people. I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this. And I will be humiliated in my own eyes. But by these slave girls you spoke of, I will be held in honor. By the way, Michael had no daughters, had no sons, had no children. God cut off her line at this point. David's response was, What is going on here is God's presence. And God's presence is setting up residence here with us. And He danced and He was excited and He didn't care what anybody thought. Well, friends, that's what we're doing when we're in worship. You don't care what anybody thought. You've realized that the dwelling of God is now in men. Now, it's funny. The book of Revelation, and I'll close with this today when we close. Don't get excited. We're not closing yet. Ends with this theme. 
says, he speaks about the bride coming and says, do you want to see her? Do you want to see her? And John's response is there, yeah, I want to see the bride. Then he saw a holy city coming down out of heaven. It was Jerusalem. And he described its dimensions, its breadth and its width and what it's made of. That was describing the saints. And once this city is set up, you know what he says? Now the dwelling of God is with men. This Bible is about man being separated from God. It's about man's sin getting in the way between God and man and God restoring man back to Himself. A place where we can live in harmony. Not scared to have Dad with us on spring break because our behavior is what Dad would want. See, this idea that has lingered with us is that we're just old sinners and that God saved us but by His mercy. This is not what the Bible teaches. What the Bible teaches is you are a saint a righteous creature made holy, sanctified, set apart for God, and His presence is in you. When you call yourself just an old sinner and your best is filthy rags and all of those things, what you're saying is God lives in a shack and it's pitiful. God chose to set up His residence in you. So, well, does that make us gods? No, it makes you filled with God's presence. Well, why then sometimes do we cry out and feel God and other times we don't? Well, I don't know. Let's see. In John 14, tell me when you get there. John 14, New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Who's there? (laughs) Ken. John 4. I'm sorry, John 14. I'm tricking you. John 4 is a later scripture. (laughs) <laughs> much success to you in finding the scriptures I give you uh, alright y'all in John 14 look at this John 14 starting in verse 15 if you love me you will obey what I command and I will ask the father and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever the spirit of truth to be with you Forever, the Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept Him because it neither sees Him nor knows Him. But you know Him, for He lives with you and will be in you. I came out of a church that just hated that. They wrote books and books and books arguing about what those prepositions mean. Is it hard to believe that it means exactly what it says it means? He's with you and He will be in you? What's the footnote say, Matthew? And is in you. Come on. I will not leave you as orphans. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Because I live, you will also live. On that day, you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Get that. Jesus is in the Father, right? You are in Jesus, and Jesus is in you. What a paradox, huh? The three are being merged. You know what that means? That means that now we have one man, Yeshua, in the Godhead. He's a part of God. And you know what? He's in you. That makes you a part of God in a loose sense of the word. Isn't that interesting? How far, how different is that than thinking that you need to call for God to come close to you? Any scripture you find that speaks about drawing near to the Lord and He'll draw near to you and those kind of things is speaking about the introduction of your relationship. As a Christian, God's presence is in you. On that day you will realize that I am in my Father and you are in me and I am in you. Whoever has my commands and obeys them, He is the one who loves me. He who loves me will be loved by my Father and I too will love Him and show myself to Him. Turn with me to Second Peter. Y'all got to hurry. No, no. Yeah, I promise. That comes in Second Peter. No. Matthew's reminding me, I promise to tell you about no. To no. Y'all in Second Peter? Yes. Give me a page number in Thompson Chain. 1353. Second Peter, chapter 1, verse 2. Grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God through the knowledge of God 
and of Jesus our Lord. Let me talk to you for a minute about what it means to know God, to know anything. Now, this is written in, in Greek, okay? But the people who wrote it were Hebrew. So I don't know whether they originally wrote it in Hebrew and then it got translated to Greek. We'll let somebody else argue about all of that. doesn't matter to me. They thought like Hebrews even if they wrote in Greek. Is fair enough? If you're an American and you learn to uh, speak Spanish and write Spanish, but if you've been an American all your life, you're probably going to think like an American even if you write in Spanish. That's how I see this. Anybody going to throw a book at me for that? Okay, good. So, when he's talking about the knowledge of the Lord, the word in Hebrew for to know, to know something, you love this, this is easy. No sounds in it or anything, right? It's yada. You ever heard somebody say, I went to the store and yada, 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 and while at the store this, yada, yada, yada? It basically means I know, I know, I know, like you know what I'm saying. Yada. But to a Greek to know something, it means that you have an intellectual knowledge of it. That's not how the Bible uses the word know at all. It doesn't simply mean to ascend to a place intellectually because we don't have a religion that simply ascends to something in an intellectual realm. We have a very functional religion. Remember the story of the Chinese man? We have a very functional religion and to know something in the Bible meant to be intimate with it. If you knew something, if you were considered wise, it didn't mean that you had a vast intellectual trivia book going on in your head. To be wise meant to be thoroughly acquainted in every function of what you did for a living. If you were a tanner, you were considered wise if you knew all the ins and outs of being a tanner. To be wise in the Bible, to possess knowledge, meant that you had practical application for it. Does that make sense? So when we know the Lord, you know that verse in Matthew says, Depart from me, I never knew you? That doesn't at all mean that God didn't have some knowledge of their existence. It meant He was never intimate with them in a functional way. Uh, Joseph did not know Mary, the Bible says, until after she had Jesus. Surely he knew who she was, right? Are we so naive not to know what that means? The word know in Hebrew implies an absolute intimate intertwining with uh, a fact. Okay? Through useful experience. So, in Second Peter, grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge, with that in mind, of God. Through your intimate understanding, practical and functional experience with God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge, again, practical experience, functional uh, working knowledge of Him, who called us by His own glory and goodness. Through these, He has given us His very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. When you have a growing knowledge, not knowledge in book knowledge, a knowledge based on your relationship with God of how He operates, how He moves in your life, how you function and intertwine with Him in an intimate way, you are participating in His divine nature. That's not God far off at all, is it? That's God pretty darn close to you. Maybe that's why Luke 10, I'm sorry, Luke 17, verse 20 says this, Once having been asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, The kingdom of God does not come with your careful observation, nor will people say, Here it is, or there it is, because the kingdom of God is within you. They were waiting for a physical manifestation which will one day come. But Jesus was saying, we are living in the days when this chariot throne of God, the presence of God, the ark of God is abiding in the tents of men. It's within you. If I heard that and I was a Pharisee, I probably wouldn't have understood what He meant. But I can tell you what the apostles understood it to mean. God's very presence, the King of the kingdom, was standing there with them in a tent. They were looking for it outward and He was saying the kingdom first establishes itself within a person. This is also why in Luke 10, verse 8, you see these words. When you enter into a town, these are directions given to the disciples. When you enter into a town and are welcomed, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick who are there and tell them the kingdom of God is near you. Well, in what way is it near you? We're already in Israel. 
In what way is it near you? We didn't see the resurrection occurring. In what way is the kingdom near us? Because the king of the kingdom has set up his chariot throne in the hearts of these men. And his presence was there in their life. That meant his power was there in their life because this was a chariot throne. Whatever God wanted to do, He could do through them. He was there present in them. Isn't that a vastly different way to think about it than if God was far off? So, okay, okay. I get it. Jesus is in us, and that's pretty cool. But we started this discussion talking about God moving. We, the title of the sermon was God's on the move. Don't we have to wait for God to move? Doesn't our worship move God? How about our fasting? Doesn't it move God when we fast? Philip one time said, Lord, show us the Father. That would be enough for us. He says, Philip, don't you know me? Are you still so dull? After such a long time, so the Father and I are one. When you see me, you see the Father working in me. I said, but wait a minute. How does this work? We pray, sometimes we feel Him. Other times we don't feel Him. If He's all around us all the time, why don't we... Why don't we get it? Why don't we comprehend it? In Hebrew, there's a word for the Spirit of God. Now, suffice it to say that when I say Jesus or God is on His throne in your heart, we're not talking about a little cracker that became Jesus and is in your body somehow by being ingested, right? I mean, that's absurdity. It's whether you get the word hocus-pocus, though. It comes from the Latin when you pray over the cracker to become Jesus, the cracker Jesus. The words sound like hocus-pocus and the Reformers were making fun of it. We're talking about God abiding in you by His Spirit. So it would do us some good to know what the words for God's Spirit are, right? In Greek, there's a word for God's Spirit and in Hebrew, there's a word for God's Spirit. It's interesting. They have the same etymology. In Hebrew, let's start there, right? Would you all like to start in Hebrew? It's ruach. That's the Spirit, the breath of God. Hakodesh. Ruach HaKodesh. This is the Spirit of God. Ruach HaKodesh. Now, tell me something. How do you think Ruach? How do you think that word is defined? Now, we know it's translated Spirit. But how do you think it's defined? It means a current of air. A breath. Now, if a current of air is stagnant, it's not a current of air, is it? You can't have a breath that is not moving air, can you? Think about like electricity. We've got an electrician in the church. I like to make use of that wherever we can. <laughs> Fixing all my wiring, answering all of the questions. What is, yeah, what is electricity? It's a continuous flow of electrons. If, if it's not flowing, you know, it's a flow of electrons. Air moving is called wind. That's why the Bible says the kingdom of God is like wind. It's actually a play on something in Ecclesiastes when Jesus was speaking uh, to Nicodemus. But it's not God if it's not moving. Do you know what it is in Greek? Anybody ever work with a pneumatic tool? What's a pneumatic tool? My daddy had me sandblasting and grinding with pneumatic tools as a kid. What? It's air-driven. So in Greek, it's hagios pneuma. Or hagios pneumaticos. Those are two ways to say it. The Holy Spirit. Hagios pneuma. You know what pneuma is? It's a stream of air. When the Bible describes God's very Spirit, this thing that has set itself up in you, He describes it as something that is on the move by very definition. You're not waiting for God to move. You're waiting for you to plug into God's movement. I love Reinhard Bonker. And now when I say that, I, I have no idea what the guy's done in the last 10 years, okay? I don't read his books. I don't watch his television programs. I love the few things I know about him. So don't come up to me tomorrow and blast me for something Reinhardt said 10 years ago. I have no idea. I don't endorse anybody but Jesus here, okay? But this attitude. In fact, Patricia sent me the tape when she was in Bible college, and I loved it. He was in a place, and he was talking and he's preaching and this big German evangelist is just fired up for God, right? And he says, uh, you, you pray for the will of God and I will do the will of God and I will run you over while I do it. 
He was talking about Christians always waiting to see which direction God is moving. He was moving with God and passing them all up all of the time. There's a fundamental difference between seeing God as something that needs to fall on you and seeing God as something that is already within you that you need to plug into in you and around you. In fact, doesn't the Bible describe in John 4 the Holy Spirit being poured into you and becoming what? A fountain welling up to eternal life. Yet how do we hear charismatic Christians talking about it all of the time? Lord, fill me with Your Spirit. He already has. That's how you got born again. He put His presence in your life. When we see Him start to overflow and we say we're filled with the Spirit, it did not come from the outside again but one time. That's when you were unclean. Now you're God's temple. He is in you. How do you get filled with the Spirit? Does it come from afar and down into you? No. It starts in you because He's put it there and it flows out of you. When I was a Baptist, I had the hardest time with charismatics for this reason. People would look at me and say, you just need to get filled with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's not in your life. Blah, blah, blah. Friends, I knew one thing. I had been touched by God. I knew I was His. I didn't care what anybody else said. Now, I may not have seen some of these gifts that they were talking about operate, but I knew God was there. And I read Romans 8 9. And Romans 8 9 said to me that if the Holy Spirit was not in you, you did not belong to Christ. So I was at a fundamental divide with all of these tongue talkers. Because they were talking about the Holy Spirit coming from the outside in, and He had already set up residence in me. I was God's temple. Then I learned this is just a matter of perspective. They didn't experience what I did. When they got filled with God's presence, all these other things happened at the same time. With me, it didn't. I felt God's power in a tremendous way. And later, I learned for that thing to well up to where it overflowed in all kinds of signs and gifts. Do you see the difference in perspective? It's important. You cry in here, Lord, just move on us. Just move on us. He's already here. You have to tap into Him. I learned from blowing fuses in my truck and speaking with a very wise electrician that we all know, that electricity takes the path of least resistance. So does God. So does God. You wonder, well, why does it seem that God's so evident in Yvette's life? Because she's the one that resists Him the least. Why does it seem like Jennifer's always the one doing all the miracles? Because she's the one willing to be moved by God in that way. God's already moving. We just need to tap into Him. John says that. I didn't write it down, unfortunately. John says in the fifth chapter, says, my Father is always at work. God is always working. It's our job to tap into Him and find out what that work is. Back to this yada thing, and then we're going to close. In Jeremiah 31, verses 33 through 34. You can turn there real quick. 31, verses 33 through 34. This is on page 878. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put My law in their minds. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be My people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know Me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. To know the Lord is to experience Him in every way. He was declaring a time when you wouldn't go to a temple to relate to God. You wouldn't need a visual representation of a cloud or an ark because God's very presence would be in you, interacting with you, giving you a yada-type knowledge of God, being practically familiar with Him. You know how you get practically familiar with Him? You learn to be sensitive to His moving and you do what He says. They said, well, Eric, why did we worship that time and it felt so dramatically different than another time? It's one of two things. Either we were not as sensitive one time as we were the other, or God, who's sovereign, wasn't moving in the way that we wanted Him to move. (laughs) You know, there are times God says, peace be still, and the other times He rouses you to war. You know, it's not a formula. God has a personality. Does that surprise you? We don't like it because that sounds like we're ascribing human attributes to God. No, it's that humans have godly attributes. They're just tainted. Those are your emotions. 
I want to close with this Revelation Scripture. Okay? It's Revelation 21, verse 3 and 4. This is one of the goals of God. This is after all the enemies have been put under feet. And I heard a loud voice from the throne. Now the dwelling of God is with men, and He will live with them. They will be His people, and God Himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. There's a day when that will be true for every corner of this globe and every person on it. Today, that's not true. You know who it's true for? It begins with the house of God. It starts with Israel and you're grafted into that blessing. That's why Christians declare that I'm a new creation. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. You may not see it in every area of your life, but the Bible declares that to be true. God dwells with you. You're never an orphan. He told His uh, apostles to go out and make disciples. Teach the nations to obey, man, and baptize them. Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Ghost. Right? He said, Lo, I am with you even until the end of the age. There is not a moment of your day God is not there. There is not a moment of the nighttime while you sleep that God is not there. That could make you uncomfortable. It did David at times. And it could encourage you. If it makes you uncomfortable, I hope it teaches you not to sin. I don't want to digress too far because I promised to close, but do you remember Paul said something? He said, how dare you in Christ join yourself to a prostitute? Don't you know that that's joining Christ to a prostitute? What do you mean? Jesus is seated on the highest heaven. What do you mean? He's also, by way of His Spirit, in you. So what you do on a regular basis, you subject Jesus to, in a manner of speaking. Not just because you bear His name in a figurative sense, but because His Spirit is in you. That'll make you live holy. Next time you want to extend the finger to somebody in traffic, you just remember that your hands are a representative of Jesus' hands. Next time you want to lash out in anger. See, that will make you live holy. Now, that's not why I'm telling you this stuff. I'm telling you this because that is an awesome sense of power in you. What mountain is too large for you to move? Jesus is with you. What obstacle is too big for you to step over? Jesus is with you. What could your boss throw at you that could be big enough that you and Jesus can't handle it together? He said, come to me. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's the Jesus that we know and serve. And you're not just yoked to Him. He is inside of you. Now, if you're not sure about that, let's pray and let's get sure. If you know He's in there but can't figure out how to get Jesus who's on the inside working on the outside, come on, we'll pray. That's what our whole lives are about. Some of you prophesy and some of you heal and some of you speak in tongues and some of you don't do any and some do one of the three and all those things. You can do anything that God wants to do through you. You just need to be convinced of what He wants to do through you and step out in faith. And we'll do it. Y'all stand up. Let's pray. God has got a chariot throne and He's on the move. You don't need to wait for God to move. You need to tap into God's moving. By definition, He's moving. Mighty God, we love You. Lord, we pray to be sensitive to Your move. Lord, our, vo- our vernacular is wrong. And we know it's wrong and we'll have trouble fixing it. But we're going to correct it in our thoughts, mighty God. We know You're not far from us, something difficult to grasp. You've placed Yourself in us. Your law is in our hearts and on our minds. Lord, we pray for a day where that's true for all of Your people Israel as well. Their promise that You've allowed us to partake in. But Lord, if You allowed us to come into this, we're going to produce the fruit of the kingdom. You didn't waste Your investment on us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.